Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vice President Joe Biden. So thank you both, President Bush and Mrs. Bush, for your ongoing commitment to honor and support the brave women, men and women who serve in the United States military, who is, without fear of contradiction, the finest fighting force in the history of the world. That is not hyperbole. It's the finest fighting force in the world. Mr. President, on a very serious note, it's my honor to present you both with the National Constitution Center 2016 Liberty Medal. We both deserve it. Welcome to Blowback. I'm Brendan James. I'm Noah Colwin. And this is our final bonus episode. We have got an interview with author, activist, public intellectual, Naomi Klein. And it was a really great conversation. We talked with Naomi about the different modes of exploitation and plunder uh, that took place during the Iraq War. We talked about Naomi's own experiences sort of coming up in the Bush years as a, as a writer and a left-wing thinker. Obviously, uh, for those familiar with her book, The Shock Doctrine, much of her analysis in that book is based on the American invasion and occupation of Iraq. And finally, we discussed the rehabilitation of the Bush administration and why that, why that might be going on right now. Uh, what's the deal with that? So it was a really good chat, and let's let her rip. <laughs> Naomi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be with you. So to kick things off, I guess I'd, I'd first ask, you were one of the most popular and visible left-wing intellectuals during the Bush era. What was it like coming up in that Iraq war decade that, you know, that this world that the Bush administration was creating or, or uh, perhaps destroying. Was it a similar apocalyptic flavor to our current moment? I think it was pretty different in lots of ways. I kind of cut my teeth as a journalist writing about the um, early days of the, of the so-called anti-globalization movement or the ultra-globalization movement. Um, so in my 20s, I was writing about sweatshops and resistance to corporate trade deals. And then my first book, No Logo, came out in 2000. Um, and I was kind of swept up in this global movement that uh, came to world attention in Seattle. Um, and I point this out just because the lens with which I saw the um, Iraq invasion and occupation was really informed by my own focus on um, economic justice issues and trade. And, um, you know, I was writing more about the economic side of the war than I was on the military side of it. But, but yeah, in terms of, in terms of the mood, in some ways, I think it was clear because liberals were so embedded in the in the project of invading Iraq, um, the the moment we're in now, which is sort of casting Trump as this extreme outlier who has right. nothing to do with the American story, that was very much not 
the tone um, and and the landscape um, in those years. Uh, the the neoliberal economic project was deeply bipartisan. The the first sort of big protests against corporate free trade were during the Clinton era, um, and and so. I think I guess that in some ways it was clearer than it is now uh, politically on the left that there was a left and it wasn't the Democratic Party, if, right. if you will. Right. Um, and and that's I, and that's I think why there was you know clear support for third party candidates and you know in the Nader run. Um, and and then of course there was a big big debate about Nader's run um, uh, in 2004 um, because of the urgency of getting rid of, uh, of, of Bush, which we didn't succeed in doing. Right. Now, your hit book, The Shock Doctrine, comes out in 2007, in the latter half of, of the Bush era. And for those who are not familiar with uh, the thesis of The Shock Doctrine, to put it very briefly, I guess you could say it would be that capital and, and the governments at its disposal use national and international crises to take advantage of uh, chaos and disarray to implement policies uh, conducive to looting and thieving and plunder by by the upper classes. And of course, there's fewer better examples of this, uh, especially in the 21st century, than the Iraq War. But it also connects specifically to a theme in our show and the, the title of our show, the misleading title of our show, maybe, Blowback, because we like to think of blowback as an algorithm for disaster capitalism. You know, it, it's it's it looks like bad stuff comes back to haunt us, but really, the, this creates new opportunities to do to do nasty things all over again that make a lot of people money. Do you think that blowback is an expression of 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 the shock doctrine in in that way? Well, the thesis for the shock doctrine was very much forged in my reporting uh, um, on the invasion and occupation of Iraq because it was so naked in, in the, you know, even in, in the way that the invasion was branded as a shock and awe attack, right? That it was, it was, it was um, the military strategy was just this very crass, like we shall overwhelm you with our, um, with our weaponry and you will just fall down in sheer awe of our force. That was, that was the military strategy, right, for the invasion. And, and then it was followed immediately thereafter with an economic shock strategy. And, and that also was completely naked. And, you know, I read about this um, in, in the shock doctrine, but also, you know, in, in my reporting um, for Harper's, um, I wrote a piece called Baghdad Year Zero uh, about, and, and in that piece talked about how the um, the this the CPA under Paul Bremer, the Coalition Provisional Authority, brought in a bunch of Eastern European um, crooks, essentially, who had sold off their own countries um, uh, uh, to the oligarchs um, from Poland, from Russia, um, and 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 brought them in in flak jackets and helmets to the green zone to lecture Iraqi uh, um, Iraqi appointees about the need to go even faster in Iraq with their economic shock therapy than they had, um, you know, that they had done in, in the former Soviet Union and, and saying, you know, you just can't give people a chance to think or resist. So it was this sort of overwhelm the senses idea. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this wasn't, this was an attempt at 
the strategy uh, that I describe in the shock doctrine. It didn't work, right? Um, because it assumed a level of idiocy on the part of Iraqis that just didn't pan out, right? I mean, a lot of the Iraqi exiles that they appointed were like, I'm sorry, I read The Guardian. Like, I've been in exile for years. <laughs> I actually know what happened in Russia and what a crook these guys, what, what crooks these guys are they brought in to, to lecture us, right? Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, nothing went according to plan. But, the, but I think to your point around blowback, the whole thing was rigged in a, in a you know, like heads, heads we win, ta- you know, tails you lose kind of way mm-hmm. in the sense that you had these three layers of pillage built in to the invasion of Iraq. One was kind of, you know, the way I understood it at the time was like, there was like the old school colonial pillage of just like, take the oil, right? And, and, and that, that, that was there, that was present from day one. And that was always a big part of the agenda. And that's mm-hmm. why they protected the oil ministry and let everything else burn and yep. so on, right? Then there was this um, this kind of newfangled neoliberal idea, um, which was which Paul Bremer was in charge of overseeing for his relatively short time in Iraq, right? Which was we're going to turn Iraq into a free market utopia that's going to benefit American business. So Bremer, you know, immediately comes in. Baghdad's still on fire by his own account, mm-hmm. um, and passes this flurry of laws that are greeted in the business press as a, I think the economists called it a capitalist dream. It was the wish list of like, you know, the flat taxes, immediate privatization of Iraq state-owned industries, yep. uh, foreign investors can come in by 100% of Iraqi assets, take all their profits out. So it was a straight-up attack on, an, on Arab nationalism and um, and it was it was like the IMF on steroids. What they were what they were trying to do. Um, it, none of the ideas were new. They were straight out of the kind of Chicago school handbook. But no country had ever tried to impose them all at once. And so, the um, the ideologues in the Bush administration were like, "We're this is our lab. We're going to do it all. We don't have a local government to negotiate with." So we can just do it all at once in a way that you couldn't even do under Pinochet because Pinochet was Chilean. Yep. <laughs> like this was just Paul Bremer doing yeah. it, you know, by decree. Um, but then there was this third level of pillage, which was um, the the self pillage that was the war itself. Right. So this was the most privatized war in history. You had this outrageous flag. Corruption, um, you know, best epitomized by the Halliburton contract, right? Where Dick Cheney goes from being CEO of Halliburton to vice president, um, the major, you know, architect of the invasion, and they hand his former company a massive no bid contract um, to run the uh, the invasion itself, right? Like they're building, they're building the um, the uh, the green zone. They're building the U.S. bases. Yep. Um, and then you have a very high ratio of contractor soldiers to um, to to uh, American soldiers, and it just gets the more contractors. The worse it gets, and more allies pull out. They're replaced by contractors from companies like like Blackwater, but many other companies as well. And so, what that means is that when the neoliberal pillage fails, and even the old school colonial pillage fails, right? Like you don't get the oil. 
you don't open up Iraq for McDonald's and, you know, Sheraton hotels because the resistance rises up and you have the blowback that I think you guys are exploring, right? You, there's still huge opportunities for profit in the occupation itself, in the military, uh, 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 in the war itself, in, in the occupation. So, um, yeah, they, they're, they've kind of rigged it. So it's, it's not to say that I think they wanted Iraq to, uh, it's not that they wanted to inspire resistance. I really do believe they were as stupid as they seemed um, in that they imagined this cakewalk, but they also had this fail safe, which is that, okay, if it all goes to hell, we still are going to all get rich. Right. I think that's a really important thing to to remember and, and to stress when trying to figure out who benefited from the dismantling of Iraq or indeed any any country like this. It's it's not a monolithic empire or array of of capitalists. Um, just even within the Bush administration, you know, from from this show, we talked about how there were rivals and certain certain cells were against each other, ostensibly on the same mission. In the same way, you can look at industries that wanted even more chaos and more bloodshed, obviously the defense contractors and, th- and uh, companies like that. But the oil companies, they actually at a certain point probably would have liked uh, less of that stuff because it got in the way of putting down their roots and it, it was an obstacle. But of course, at the end of the day, these are all basically playing on the same team uh, against Iraq as the uh, as, as the Alien versus Predator movie said, uh, whoever wins, uh, we lose. So... <laughs> and and there's one thing that you bring up that I think we talk a little bit about during the regular series run of our show that I think uh, is sort of interesting, which is the way that these this rise in private military uh, contracting coincides with sort of a like like a like a, a policy shift or at least like a political shift in the thinking of the Republicans in power at that time. Like you know, right before like the day before the planes hit the twin tower, Don Rumsfeld was you know holding a press conference to talk about like you know, like multi like, or like trillion dollar accounting fraud at the Pentagon and a need to cut costs. Mm-hmm. And it feels like part of what you're describing, in addition to getting all those guys rich, became this kind of very satisfying answer, at least to them, of course, not for anybody else, obviously, but it became a satisfying answer of how do we wage war on the cheap? Uh, you know, Rumsfeld's favorite line about like, you know, light footprint uh, army and, and mobilization and a reliance mm-hmm. on special forces, which then has, you know, the further consequence of making an already incredibly opaque, massive, uh, unaccountable branch of the American government, the military, even more opaque and unaccountable. Yeah, I think it was even more corrupt than that, though, because I don't think that it was about waging war on the cheap. It was incredibly expensive to outsource the whole thing to for-profit companies. There was so much waste in it. Um, it was just, I think, ideal, like... <laughs> I mean, I, use, I always kind of use the word ideology in air quotes with these guys, because I think their whole ideology is a cover story for greed and, you know, self-enrichment, right? And so if you look at who some of the key players were, um, they have deep ties to the sectors that that are part of this disaster capitalism complex. Um, obviously, Cheney, as somebody who, you know, comes directly from Halliburton, a company that already had these contracts building army bases, but also securing, um, uh, you know, doing, doing oil service work. Um, then you had all the, all the people from the oil industry, like Condi Rice, who had a, you know, you know, Chevron tanker named after her, um, and, and Bush himself. But even somebody like Paul Bremer, I mean, this is, he, he started a 
um, an insurance company that was selling uh, on their counterterrorism services after 9-11. Um, so, and, and, and Rumsfeld as well, coming from Gilead, he had a special interest in profiting from pandemics. Um, so I think the, the, these are people who have spent a lot of time thinking about how to profit from various forms of chaos, whether terrorism or war or disease. Um, you know, that's who they are. So um, it wasn't cheap. I guess that's the only thing I really want to push back on. Right. It was a complete boondoggle and built to be for U.S. taxpayers. They treated the government like their personal ATM. Right. Um, they did an absolutely terrible job. But when it came to the shareholders of these companies, um, you know, they did very, very well by them. Right. And I think that part of the, you're totally right. And I think that, you know, a way that I would like maybe tweak it a little is that like part of the pitch about how they get away with all of these like destructive, expensive, excessive things is by claiming that they're on the cheap and that there is some purpose. But as you say, that, right. that really is just a cover story. Right. It, there is an ideological cover story about how privatizing anything will make it more efficient. Um, you know, that government is always the problem, not the solution. And I think what was significant about the Bush administration is that this process that um, really accelerates in earnest under Reagan um, and continued through the Clinton era, um, you know, the way I talked about it at the time was, you know, the, 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 the government, picture the government as this octopus and, and, and over this 40-year period, various arms of the state are being lopped off and turned into profit centers, right? Healthcare, education, roads, bridges. Um, but by the time the Bush guys got there, all that was sort of left was the body, mm -hmm. right? Like running the government itself. And that's what they went after, right? Um, and, and, and it was things like cutting checks for people on welfare. I mean, that was outsourced to Lockheed Martin, you know? Um, it was the absolute core, and of course, the military itself. And that was Rumsfeld mits, Rumsfeld's mission. You know, he came in as the, you know, he was greeted as, in the business press at the time, before 9-11, as this um, the CEO who was going to run the Pentagon like a business. Yeah. And it was part of his mission from day one to outsource everything that he possibly could. And then they outsourced the whole war. Yep. And uh, one one thing we note, it's funny actually now, given his uh, most infamous role as the defense secretary during the I Iraq years, I think we all remember Rumsfeld, although the, pur the purpose of the show is to um, remember more. We all kind of remember Rumsfeld as this bureaucrat, like the kind of king bureaucrat. But as you point out at the time, he was he was a business guy and his flavor was more of this Gilead cost cutting a hard-minded captain of industry, and um, yeah. he 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 successfully slipped into the bureaucrat role, um, but only through that uh, reputation. And if if I may insert something, I think this also feels a little bit like some of the amnesia that's related to the present moment, because obviously, you know, Condi Rice had also been on the board of Chevron prior to joining the George W. Bush White House, and it feels like there was a degree of like conflict of interest, and you know, like the kind of you know like. Uh, sort of co uh, revolving door culture that we associate with like the worst excesses of the of the Trump administration but that was you know just as effective and just as well greased yeah. uh, maybe not quite as well greased but just uh, you know was similarly effective you more know, 10 effective. years ago more effective yeah. more effective yeah. Yeah. more effective and more lucrative um y you know i mean this is part of the frustration i think of of this era is like 
you know, we have not seen, and I'm not, I'm, I want to, I think Trump is a crook. He is, he, he is incredibly dangerous president. We have to get rid of him. So those are all the caveats, but that, but, but, but we have not seen the kind of looting of the public sphere under Trump yeah. that I know of that's been reported. Then we saw right out in the open yeah. under the Bush administration. Um, you know, I remember a, f- a couple years ago, um, David Frum tweeted about how, you know, are we really, you know, losing, you know, a- a- American power over handbags, patents, and, 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 you know, hotel contracts. It's just talking about the sort of self-dealing of the Trump kids. And, you know, I responded at the time, like, yeah, it was much more manly <laughs> to do it over <laughs> Halliburton contracts and Bechtel, you know, but we've, ne- like, th- those were $20 billion contracts. This is peanuts what the Trump kids have done yeah. compared to that. So, um, I think one of the differences is, is that the companies represented by the, by the Bush cabinet were not for the most part, brand-based companies. So that was part of it, right? That like Americans didn't really understand what Halliburton did um, or what Gilead did, and and that's why the Cheneys and the Rumsfeld was, were able to kind of hold on to this aura that they were first and foremost government people <laughs> as opposed to business people. Um, because they weren't these weren't direct to consumer companies for the most part. Um, where and so I think the evolution, such as it is, or devolution, when you come to like Trump's first cabinet, was just the kind of these were naked direct to consumer corporate CEOs that he was wanted to surround himself with, whether Rex Tillerson or his first choice for labor secretary, right, Andrew Pudzer, who owns you know fast food chains, he has the CEO of. WWE in there, right? Um, Linda McMahon. Yeah. So these are companies that Americans understand. They buy products from them, right? Um, and it was a, that was the difference. But but in terms of just sheer efficiency and like numerical value of 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 what they were able to extract from American taxpayers, I mean, Trump's got nothing on Bush. One thing I, I, w- I was kind of curious about was, you know, I think one of the things that in our show that we've tried to do is communicate for people what the sensation was like that, you know, like, how could America go to war? Like, what was, you know, because, for example, last year, when the Trump administration tried all of these tricks to get us to, you know, like, like invade Venezuela, or at least create the conditions for an invasion of Venezuela or mil- advanced military action, and the same in Iran and so on, and the popular support was, like, just not there. And obviously, a, a huge chunk of that was informed by our experience in Iraq, but... I think for a lot of people, it's sort of, especially the younger uh, end of our audience now, it's like a little bit difficult to kind of conjure what it was like in 2002 and 2003 and the early years of the war that would lead people to support what, you know, seemed to a lot of thinking people to be a pretty transparently, uh, a war conducted on pretty transparently uh, false pretenses. What was that sensation like? Like, how did, I mean, at least as you observed it, like, how did the American people um, you know, end up co-signing such an obviously monstrously bad decision. Um, there are a few a few factors. It had been how long? A year and a half since nine since nine eleven. The role of powerful liberal voices in legitimizing illegal invasion 
torture. I think that there were, there was a class of of liberals, mostly American liberals, uh, but also British liberals, who had read a lot of Orwell <laughs> and yep. saw this was their this was they had asked themselves, I think, as young young men, almost all men, <laughs> what what would they do in a you know if in their Orwell moment, and that being the sort of the the Second World War fight against fascism. Um, will you be a weak lefty and be against war, you know, or will you man up? Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe they had been waiting for that moment their whole lives, their Orwell test, and they believed that this was their Orwell moment. And en masse, these very powerful liberal figures, you know, Michael Ignatieff, Christopher Hitchens, yeah. um, you know, obviously Thomas Friedman, um, yep. Tony Blair, you know, more than a more than a, a commentariat, like member of the commentariat. You know, they all, uh, but and there were so many of them. George Packer. I mean, they all wrote and argued versions of this same argument that this was this was the moment where we had to show our toughness and resolve in standing up to fascism, right. and and the whole Second World War frame was grafted onto onto this. Yep. And and it made no sense. Um, and that's why I say it felt like they had been waiting for this their whole lives to play this role, to play act this. Yeah. And it, it, I think it was a really, really big factor. Um, that and I think, you know, uh, uh, equations around masculinity and in the American psyche were, were um, and this sort of the injured patriarch mm -hmm. um, after 9-11 and the need to reassert a certain kind of raw force power um, that was just deeply embedded in, in, in the Bush administration in the way in which they were just looking for someone to hurt. Yep. And it had to be someone strong enough that it was worthy of their power, right? Afghanistan was not satisfying. It was too weak. Right, it's not it's not satisfying enough to beat the shit out of a really weak opponent, and that's how Afghanistan was sort of posited. Like they were saying, we're going to bomb them back to the Stone Ages, and then it was like they're already in the Stone. You know, like it was just like it it wasn't seen as a worthy enough target to to express that raw masculine yeah. force, and Iraq was was a better tableau on which to 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 enact this sort of theater of force mm. speaking of theater one of the things that we're seeing in our current moment one of the more grotesque and uh, disturbing things is the wholesale rehabilitation of george w bush and his administration by the press and liberal politicians you know, you see um, the George W. Bush Foundation doing little COVID uh, tearjerker videos or weighing in on Black Lives Matter or uh, MSNBC talking about how, how great he was, especially compared to Trump. And, and I thought about George W. Bush and I thought about New York. I mean, New York City and New York State were not places where you could, you know, find a car full of, you know, George W. Bush voters. But I do not remember anyone ever blinking or flinching the entire duration of that city 
my hometown city now rebuilding after 9-11. And I just, there is, there is no, you know, similar DNA that we've seen yet in Donald Trump and New York City's his hometown. Yes. I mean, I was thinking back to 9-11, Nicole, and I, I have no recollection of George Bush politicizing it in any way. By the way, the uh, the anchor in that MSNBC clip is uh, Nicole Wallace, a former Bush communications director. So we're, we're hiring Bush people to be on ostensibly liberal TV channels, revising history. You know, and not just Bush. You've seen uh, Rumsfeld go on the late shows. You've seen Colin Powell continue to be worshipped. You see um, Condi Rice, you know, write a book called Democracy and uh, be consulted on on an expert on Russia Gate and well, stuff she runs like the this. Hoover Institute and get seriously floated as a possible running mate for Joe Biden. Yes, yes, precisely. So, what do you make of this? You know, what what's 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 the purpose of this? You know, this is why I, I've argued since the earliest days of of the Trump administration that we needed to metabolize him not as a rupture but as a as a series of continuities right when which is which does not mean that he isn't different um because he is different um but there are so many threads that we can follow obviously from before bush but let's just looking at bush right and that whole era there was that famous interview where um, uh, uh, Ron Susskind, uh, interviewed, I believe it was Karl Rove. Um, and he told Ron Susskind that he was a member of the reality based community. Um, but, you know, we in the Bush administration are making reality, right? Um, and so the, you know, in understanding that they really believed that. That they really, and this is why I think the blowback thesis. I think you have to be a bit careful with that. They didn't. They were they were covered if this all went haywire, but they really did believe that they were going to create this model free market utopia in in Iraq. They were that dumb that they thought there wouldn't be a reaction. Now they were covered if there was. Yeah. They, um, but they actually believed that they were so smart that they were just going to overwhelm Iraqis with their with their weaponry and with their fast moving economic plans, and Iraqis were going to accept having their country sold out from under them in the aftermath of war, um, because they they saw themselves, you know, as artists of the real. Yeah. <laughs> they were they were putting their hands in the rubble and making a country from whole cloth, and so that kind of delusion of course, leads to the uplifting of a reality star as the president. <laughs> I mean, there is a straight line that goes from one to the other. Sure. Um, and, and, and I think there, there are so many ways in which what we saw during the Iraq invasion, the refusal to count the bodies, remember, we had to fight so hard just to know how many people were dying, refusing to let... Um, uh, uh, the the photographs of of the coffins of U.S. soldiers be um, you know be, be appear in the press, refusing um, to even let the public know how many Iraqis uh, how, had died. Uh, um, all of this l- creates the context where you can have a Trump who just you know won't look at the number of people won't even admit that people are dying in the face of this pandemic won't um won't admit that that thousands of people died in Puerto Rico as a result of 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 his administration's actions after hurricane maria 
there are these continuities, but I think that you know the role of the perpetual innocence, the perpetual now in the American narrative, that's not new, right? There's all there, there's always the assumption of innocence, and that assumption of innocence is what allowed these powerful liberals um, to make the argument that this profoundly corrupt and evil administration. And I say evil because. They were throwing people into dark holes in Guantanamo Bay. They were already known torturers when they invaded Iraq. Um, they had already created a legal framework for themselves that allowed them to flout international law in so many ways and to abuse people and attack so-called liberalism on every front. They were the ones that then claimed, made these claims to American innocence that allowed them to tell a story that, sure, we don't... You know, we don't um, believe in wars of aggression, but we believe in fighting for human rights and democracy in Iraq. And that is why we are supporting these monsters invading Iraq, because we think they're going to bring democracy and human rights to Iraq. And that is the, the toxicity of, of, and the, of the depths of this claim to innocence at mm. the heart of the American project that, right. you know, you're always starting from scratch. You're always assumed to have the best of intentions. And, and, and it, it leads to very, very, very dangerous things. So we are now seeing it applied to the Trump administration, sorry, to the Bush administration retroactively, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it's part of the same process that allowed for the invasion of Iraq in the first place. Yep. That's definitely the line on our show. One other point that I think is important to think about is, like I said, I mean, I do think that, that, that Trump is a new manif kind of like there are things about Trump that are that are new. We've never had a reality show completely unhinged reality show star there uh, as a president, although you know the the, the end of the Reagan, the Reagan yeah. administration arguably um, you, know, you, you could argue that Reagan invented the reality show genre in lots of ways with his GE, you know, in his own home um, tableaus that he did for television, inviting the cameras into his home and, and staging this um, futuristic uh, uh, vision of, of, of what domestic life should be with Nancy at his side. I mean, that was an early reality show. Tonight, we're going visiting at the Ronald Reagans again in their new home to see how their many wonderful electric servants are helping them, just as they'll help you, live better electrically. Oh, that's hot. Oh, it's not. Oh, but delicious. Everything's just right, isn't it, Patty? Yeah. Well, it's the easiest meal to make. My electric servants do everything. Well, that's part of living better electrically. And so I think, you know, this desire to escape into a shinier, um, uh, um, you know, Hollywood version of reality is runs very very deep and 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 tr and the thing about Bush is that he was just bad at it right I mean he would dress up in flight suits and you know clear clear brush and pretend to be a, a cowboy yeah. but he wasn't a good actor he wasn't good at playing the part that he had cast himself in people didn't believe him as a cowboy they didn't believe him as a fighter pilot <laughs> um, Trump is just better at playing a part. He has been playing the same part since the 1980s. It is a true skill of him, his, as a performer. And so it is, a, it, you know, it is an evolution um, that learned, I think, from some of the mistakes of the Bush years. Get a better actor um, <laughs> if you're going to do this. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think, you know, another continuity that I think 
we need to be frank about is that there's no doubt that that the most significant difference with the Trump administration is the openness of white supremacy. Um, and that is very, very important for us to acknowledge that and just how dangerous it is to have an administration filled with um, you know, unabashed white supremacists and a president who is sending encouraging signals yeah. to white supremacists across the country. That is different. That was not something that Bush was doing in the same way. But the white supremacy built in to the Bush administration's response to 9 yeah. 11 was so deep. And the profound racism. Um, in the entire framing of a war of civilizations and the unbelievable racism of refusing to count the civilian deaths in Iraq as if those lives mattered not at all. Yep. Um, and the impact of having to utterly indoctrinate soldiers in a mentality that would allow them to participate in torture in Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay. Um, or accept as um, collateral damage, or uh, you know, seeing a a any Iraqi that comes near their convoy as a potential threat. Um, that ha that is has ramifications that we're still living with. Yeah. Um, and we need to recognize the continuities of the white supremacy of American foreign policy and how that manifests at home. And I think this is one of the biggest weaknesses of the hashtag resistance is just the general lack of interest in foreign policy, right? Yep. Although, honestly, you could probably go even a bit further, at least I would argue, because where there is interest on the part of the contemporary liberal or hashtag resistance person or uh, Democrat loyalist, they are actively supportive of things like a coup in Venezuela or a coup in Bolivia or saber rattling and being tough, quote unquote, on Iran. Uh, because ultimately, deep down, however that, however much they want to say that the right are a bunch of lizard-brained uh, cowboys or, or um, crooks or whatever, they share all the same premises, clearly, about American empire and power. Uh, they, they, they might want to go about it slightly differently, but they agree that we're a beacon of freedom, or we used to be before Trump, blah, 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 and that uh, American global domination should be preserved and strengthened, in fact. And anyone who resists this is like Trump, an authoritarian crank, you know, whether it's a left-wing government in Venezuela or Bolivia, or a right-wing government in, uh, in the case of Russia, for example. And then even when they're, when they're at their most passionate criticizing Trump, they're doing it through the lens of weird jingoistic stuff about how he's secretly a Manchurian candidate for, for Russia or China, some foreign malevolent entity. And uh, just good luck getting anything done <laughs> um, as far as, you know, international solidarity or making the, getting things straight, uh, working with that type of mindset. But anyway, I'm rambling now. <laughs> uh Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on our show. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for um, doing this little bit of popular education and dragging it out of the memory hole. Thanks. That's that's the goal. Yep. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, we solve all the problems. Um, Good. But uh, well done. Thanks again. It was great to talk to you again, Naomi. And uh, please stay healthy and stay safe. You too. Oh, 
I was thinking back to 9-11, Nicole, and I, I have no recollection of George Bush politicizing it in any way. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. Former Vice President Dick Cheney, thank you for being here and sharing your memories. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Samantha. Churchill Solitaire. Donald Rumsfeld, everybody. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.